This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, the deserving and the undeserving, avoiding classism in speculative fiction. So, um, this episode was suggested by Jules, uh, but it was one of those ones where Jules said, hey, I want to talk about this, um, and clearly we are actually <laughs> sort of privy to some kind of hive mind, because I had also been thinking about this subject so um I, Jules Yay. basically explained well this has been grating my cheese um which I know what she's trying to say but considering how much Jules likes cheese you would you would think <laughs> that actually meant that she'd been enjoying it um my head cheese your head cheese which which is less you don't want to ha- you don't want your head cheese grated um but so both of us have been thinking about this, but I think it, it came to a, a bit of a head um, because Jules just recently finished reading a book, well, last year, um, which kind of just sort of put the final nail in the coffin, as it were. Yeah, it just sort of <clears throat> crystallised a lot of um, loose things that have been kind of bugging me around the whole subject. Mm. And, you know, classism is quite a sticky topic because it requires a lot of nuanced and careful examination um but it's amazing how often it creeps into speculative fiction seemingly without the authors even being aware of it and you know what i'm i hold myself accountable as well i may well have have fallen into some trips and traps as well without being aware of it mm-hmm. um most of us probably have um but yeah uh, class isn't analogous with poverty or wealth although it obviously can go hand in hand with those subjects yeah um, and honestly, there's a lot of ignorance on both sides um, when it comes to classism. And frankly, while completely exploding these preconceptions is beyond the scope of this podcast, uh, hopefully we will give you something to chew on um, when it comes to speculative fiction. Uh, so, as I said, too big a topic to really kind of go into it on a on a grand global scale, but in terms of writing... Hopefully we can get started. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Okay, so what do we mean by classism? Let's have a basic <laughs> definition to start with. Yeah. Um, now, in any culture where there is an active hierarchy of privilege, um, and by privilege we mean that certain benefits are conferred or withheld, depending where, where in the hierarchy you stand, this is effectively a class system. Yeah. Um, class systems may have areas where they cross over with racism or other prejudices, prejudices even. Um, but the, and this is the really important point: they're not defined by those other prejudices, uh, which are generally secondary to the social hierarchy. So, if someone's investing keeping a social hierarchy in place for whatever reason, and it mm-hmm. could be a grand scheme, it can be a small scheme, then they may well play on those prejudices because prejudice and ignorance definitely do go hand in hand so they may make use of it but the point of the class system itself is not to enforce a particular sort of um, ethnic prejudice or anything like that it's just there and you know that's a useful kind of tool for whoever's trying to enforce it Mm -hmm. Um, which I think a lot of people quite understandably 
get those things muddled together because classism kind of affects everyone. Um, it's not specific against one particular group of people. I mean, it's really literally the haves and the have-nots to a certain extent. Yeah, of course, um, you know, when we are talking about classism, we've got to also remember, as previously stated, that um, there are different kind of systems and hierarchies in place which have been built upon different things. So, you know, of course, there is a difference between the hierarchy and the class system that you get in England, which is a much older kind of country with a very, very long history, than you get with America, where the USA, you know, that society as it was known, not, we're not talking about sort of the Native American peoples, but the, you know, the, 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 the society that was built up by the sort of the invaders, um, uh, is younger. So yes, it is going to look a little bit different and it is going to, you know, different things are going to have been put in the boiling pot to kind of create it. But at the same time, um, it's not a, a, a kind of, well, I was going to say it's not a black and white sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's absolutely not a binary argument. Yeah. And anybody who tries to go in saying, well, these people are good and these people are bad just doesn't understand. And it's very, very frustrating when you see that sort of advocated, particularly in speculative fiction, which I kind of feel maybe unjustly should do better. Mm. Um, and yeah, OK, there you know, in certain areas of the world, you're more likely to fall into a certain lower class if you fit a certain set of attributes. Yeah. But generally speaking, and, you know, I hate being general when I'm trying to be nuanced, but there you go, um, certain, uh, you know, the system gem was generally not created in order to specifically castigate those attributes, is, is what I'm trying to say. And again, we can't go into a, a global examination of classism, because that's beyond us. We're sticking to speculative fiction yeah um so yeah it's understandable why these things are easily confused it's just not accurate and i think we can do better yeah and we do have class systems as madeline said that can be thoroughly entrenched and difficult to weed out even if the law no longer openly supports them so mm. the uk is a really good example of that where it's very much still you know the class system that emerged during say the civil war and then up through um so basically georgian england victorian era Mm -hmm. into the, the age of the proper proper age of empire as it was and then into the world war era mm -hmm. and then to modern times it's all changed an awful lot but at the same time that's come from feudalism pure and simple yeah um and a very very long history of <laughs> feudalism a very long history and you know several a couple of thousand years of it <laughs> yeah uh whereas um you know you can get other versions where uh, a society can masquerade as a uh, meritocratic system but actually still favour certain people over others um, and a very clear example of that is the USA yeah and you can also have you know th these class systems can have a religious component so you know with, I, I won't say that I'm an expert on this I'm absolutely not but uh, the caste system that is still quite prevalent in India for example, mm -hmm. even though, let's be fair, the more modernised parts of India are desperately trying to get away from it. It's just, again, it's one of those entrenched things that's quite difficult to uproot. Yeah, and I mean, even we, we still see elements of that in, in Europe as well. 
um, you know, that there is a definitive link, for example, if you look in France between the Catholic Church and the, um, the, the Aristo, yeah. and the kind of the relationship that goes along with that, um, you know, so as we've said, there is no, well, it's like this here and it's like this here. Um, <laughs> it's a whole mixed bag. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you can even have a more modern take on it, which have you, have you seen the social value model that's currently being employed in China, for example, uh, where you mm. get voted up and down on citizen points? Yeah. And if you get voted down low enough, you can't do things like catch trains or work in certain jobs. Yeah, um, which is terrifying. Which is quite is quite troubling. Yeah. So again, we can't really go into it, but classism can wear many different faces. Is what we're getting at. Yeah, and absolutely no culture on earth has not indulged in it at some point. That's really important to remember. Uh, no one's hands are clean. Uh, no one's ancestors are blameless. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these are the very broad strokes because once again, we can't say this too much, it's beyond the scope of this podcast to really get into the, the details on the actual phenomenon of classism. Mm-hmm. Um, feel free to do your own research, you'll probably be there a while. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so let's get to the main sort of topic at hand, which is how does classism sneak into speculative fiction? Um, now. Uh, firstly, if you've done any of these things in your writing, uh, we should preface this by saying, don't worry. Uh, pretty much everybody has at some point. We are also products of what we read and what we're surrounded by um, and of, you know, the the life that we have lived. And the fact is that most of us are living within a certain class system and we can be sort of blind to that. Yeah, some things are so big you literally can't see them with the naked eye. Yeah. You have to be able to step outside of them. So, you know, there's no one really to blame for that. Um, Yeah. It's only if you realise it and choose to stay there, it's kind of the issue. Um, It doesn't make you a bad person if you want to write characters who are part of the wealthy elite. I mean, Anne Rice did very well in her lifetime writing largely about rich characters because having characters who are rich solved a lot of narrative problems for her which is largely why she did it yeah um but on the other side of that it also doesn't make you a better person if you want to write characters who are underprivileged um morality it's it's not you know you're better because you've decided to do one or the other um that's not kind of how it works and depending on the story uh, you'll want to have different things and honestly there is also you know there's an element of saying well actually perhaps if you come from an underprivileged background you want to write about underprivileged characters or perhaps you actually want to do a little bit of wish fulfillment and write about privileged characters um you're yeah. not right or wrong either way. No, absolutely. You should write the story you want to write. Um, the only thing we generally advocate is watching out for things that can slip in unconsciously and trying to make conscious decisions about your writing instead. Yeah. If you've got a perspective on the world which you've had no reason to examine and have taken for granted, you've probably, you know, had a few things which have slipped into your fiction. This isn't a bad or a good thing, it is just a thing which has happened. 
Um, and it's something you can kind of learn from. It's something you can re-examine as you continue on with your writing career. And yeah. um, obviously your definition of normal will vary. And, you know, it's something Madeline and I have both at some point spoken about during the course of the podcast, um, whereby our experiences growing up were different from other people's experiences. They were different from each other because obviously we're not the same generation either. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was very lucky in the sense I got sent to a private school. Um, from another perspective, I was one of the poorest girls at that private school where I was attending school with people who had their own horses and tennis courts and, you know, as much money as they wanted, which was kind of unheard of for me. I'm, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying that even within a band where you would consider people comparatively more privileged, there's also a wide spectrum within that band as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that sort of later on, but in particular, um, you know, there's there's the whole, what is it to be middle class, for example? Um, you know, the difference between being working class and middle class. Um, and honestly, there is, I think, more of a divide between being sort of part of the elite than there ever has been between being working class and middle class, because middle class really, at its core, was just kind of like a development from working class, from a system, and I'm talking about the UK, from a system where there was a two-class system, either you were part of the elite or you weren't, to suddenly there being a, actually, um, there is a chance for more opportunity, um, more kind of uh, comfort and things like that, which up until that point had been very rare and was still very much based on sort of where you were born um, yeah so it's a it's a whole complicated thing it anyway. is absolutely um and i think you made a really good point about the middle class there which i actually haven't touched on yeah so it's just that weirdly that all kind of dates back to around the 14th century when you really saw the middle class start to evolve with sort of mm -hmm. the merchant class which is what yeah. the middle class originally was and economically it became very viable for the country particularly since it had been you know, we'd lost half our population to the Black Death. So yeah. there was a huge economic upheaval anyway, and we got social reform because of that economic upheaval. Um, but the middle class was a really important step to not losing complete economic power in Europe because we were comparatively poor to the rest of Europe. So that middle class thing has been, middle class level has been really important there. You want the working class to think, there's something to aspire to, ergo I will keep working, you know, from a very cynical point of view. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you also don't, you, as Madeline says, there is, a, there is a buffer line between being working class and actually getting into the gentry and, and then an even higher buffer line from getting into the gentry into the, the sort of titled aristocracy type class. It's, yeah. it's much, much harder. And there, there's a good, you know... <laughs> There's not. There's only room for a certain number of people in that top bracket. Yeah. So yes, they want those. They they want to keep the population content, or at least that was the theory back in the day. Um, but at the same time, how you do that is also saying you can aspire to this, so you can aspire to a better life. Just keep working, keep your nose at the grindstone. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, 
everything was then sort of further complicated where you know there was also an element of then education which came into it and opportunity um and of course now we you know it's it's even more different because to be working class now is very different to be working class during the 1400s um, yeah. it looks slightly different um, and how we then actually measure how do we measure being middle class compared to being working class um, is it and and I think the problem is also with the words is there's this kind of sense of well if you're middle class you think you're better um, but if you're working class you actually have to work much harder etc um, and also this idea that you know that there is this kind of divide between these you know these two and I say classes with inverted commas um, when in reality at any given point most people are much closer to being homeless most people are much closer to sort of having absolutely nothing than they are to uh, you know ever touching the elite that, that yeah. top bracket yeah absolutely <laughs> to be honest um there is a big difference between being working class now to being working class back in the early 80s late 70s yeah and again further back a couple of decades and again further back to say my grandmother um growing mm-hmm. up in in ireland um just before the second world war um that was very very working class and if I described some of the conditions now, people would be horrified, and yet that was the norm. So, yeah. So yeah, it, it really, really has changed. It doesn't necessarily mean everything's changed for the better, and we shouldn't complain. It just means that, I mean, in theory, the overall standard of living has definitely got higher. So there's yeah. that to be. That's good. But there's other stuff that really does still need addressing. Anyway, yeah. we're talking about speculative fiction, so we're going to come back to the point, or we're going to try to. Yeah. So let's have a look at a few sort of examples of things that you can do differently, which you might have been doing unconsciously. So I'm going to hop in on the first one, and that is treating homeless people as novelties. Now, there are a lot of reasons why someone might be homeless. It could be poverty related, or it could be done to... Uh, you know so rather it could be down to having to flee a desperate situation um it it can also be down to um drug addiction yeah um or just even misunderstanding homelessness can take a lot of forms so um you know when we think homelessness you might automatically imagine sort of someone living on the street but also homelessness can be uh, sofa surfing uh, to wild camping um, you know to you know living out of someone's shed etc not being able to you know afford rent or having to kind of um, you know move places depending on, on what you can afford it at any given time the main thing to remember is that these are people first um, and homeless second. So let's try to get away from Victorian ideas about the deserving and the undeserving poor, which is a big thing. Yeah, it's a bit depressing, but it's still kind of in the back of the... It's subconsciously in the back of the zeitgeist, isn't it? It's still kind of in there. It was 
it never used to be a thing and then you got to the Victoria it used to be a case of during the middle ages all the way up to sort of the Georgian times you just gave alms to the poor there was no deserving and undeserving poor and then the Victorians came along and were like well some people deserve help and some people don't and I think we should be logical and scientific about this and not help the ones who don't deserve it and it's just stuck it's still there it really is I remember sort of I read a story about someone you know (laughs) who's you know giving sort of money to to homeless people and you know the argument was well they're just going to go and use it to to buy drugs or something like that um and the the response was um essentially it's their business what they do with it um you know what they decide to do with it is on them what i decide to do with it is on me essentially this is my money so i decide to give it to someone who clearly needs it and that's that's the extent of what i'm doing that's all i'm doing is giving it to someone who who clearly needs money um and that is where my <laughs> my business with this ends as it were <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And if you're somebody who prefers to give to charity through registered charities that you've checked out and decided actually they're kind of in in line with my own personal morality and what have Mm -hmm. you, then again, that's up to you. Uh, There there are charities which I wouldn't support because I don't like the things they endorse. Yes. But they might suit other people and you are, and you know, as long as the money's going to the people it's supposed to be going to, I guess, the. You know, even if I don't personally like it, it's not my business what somebody else does with it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can also understand people's, you know, who might actually feel uncomfortable with just giving money to somebody they see on the street, um, and will actually would actually much rather donate to a, a cause or something like that. You know, there's different reasons why people do different things. Um, but we have got to move away from this idea that there are inherently people who are more deserving um, than than others in that situation. Certainly we might sort of say, okay, well, there are perhaps people who need more money than others or who need more assistance than others uh, because one person is in a semi-stable situation and one other person isn't. And if you have finite resources, perhaps you need to create a system which prioritizes those in a more dangerous situation but that's a different that's a different thing to saying someone is more deserving than yeah. not i mean this entire trope of treating homeless people as novelties um i've seen someone criticize i can't remember which terry pratchett book it was it's out mm. of my head i'm not I'm, I'm actually even wondering if it's one i've read because it it didn't you know I, it's the sort of thing that i think would stick in my head Mm-hmm. And there's a group of people who are clearly, you know, supposed to be homeless people and, you know, they're, they're dirty and they're ill-dressed and they're smelly and they're also clearly on the, on the make. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got things like a thinking brain dog with them, you know, as opposed to a yeah. seeing eye dog, etc. And clearly what Pratchett was doing was taking the piss out of um, the sort of Victorian and earlier, in fact, Court of Miracles mentality of people who who deliberately presented themselves as being disabled in order to beg. Yeah. Um, but then were actually able to sort of remove the, the turtle shells from their eyes and they were perfectly 
well sighted etc and what have yeah. you and pop their joints back into place at the end of the day and walk off with money which you know maybe should have gone to people who literally could not I mean the entire problem of you know disabled people just ending up on the, the street as a default is a huge huge problem in its own right yes so I think what he was doing was taking the piss out of that and saying you know it's it's best to like think about where you're applying your money because there are con artists out there fair enough yeah but I also do understand the perspective of people saying, well, this is a really distasteful thing to include in a book, particularly presented in a funny way. Um, and perhaps that person didn't really understand it. It was satirising a very spe- specific kind of um, behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, either way, I think I'd steer clear of it. But <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I do see both perspectives is kind of what I'm getting at. Okay, um, so poor protagonists are somehow living like one percenters. This one does genuinely really bug me, although I do understand the temptation to just remove certain obstacles so you can tell the story. Yeah, um, but it is a little bit tone deaf. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a private investigator who is having trouble getting paid or even getting cases at all, then having them live in a city in an apartment which would clearly cost several thousand a month to rent Mm -hmm. just doesn't bear any resemblance to reality so as much as i love jessica jones she has this uh, the the apartment she's got in the tv series netflix Mm. series rather would clearly i don't know two thousand three thousand a month to rent and yet she drinks a lot and she doesn't really eat anything except bad takeaway and she just doesn't she and she seems to be constantly out of work as well (laughs) I mean, she can't possibly be getting paid that much for what she does as a private investigator. Yeah, unless, of course, the the, the apartment is somehow covered by something else. But Yeah, but I mean, mostly, as I said, it's just down to authors not considering the logistics and it being convenient to the story for the main character to have a home with X number of rooms. Fair enough, I do understand that. Yeah. However, anyone who's ever had to rent somewhere... <laughs> It's going to raise an eyebrow. Um, What you can do instead is you can explain why the rent is so cheap or where the home came from. So are they they long-term house-sitting for a wealthy friend who are living abroad? Mm -hmm. Is the place unsellable because it's haunted, but your main character gets on with their spooky roomie? (laughs) (laughs) Or are they in danger of losing their home every minute and constantly stressed about making enough money in order to be able to pay the rent? Um, That's something you can also include. It is a very human struggle um and you know what even if you do come up with an explanation that makes sense you're potentially still choosing to give your hero a home that's way outside most people's income brackets so maybe consider that as well yeah absolutely i mean for example i feel like harry dresden they did it quite well in the sense that he has this place but um you know he never has hot water he (laughs) He's always struggling to kind of get the rent and things like that. He doesn't like have that. electricity either, does he? Yeah, because he magic have... just fries everything, so he just stopped bothering. Yeah, exactly. Which I guess also, you know, if you're not paying those bills, then maybe you can... Uh, that can help with certain things. But also, um, it was quite funny, because obviously you really get a sense of that in the in the books, but in the short TV series that they did, he had this amazing place, and you thought, there's no way the Harry Dresden we know for this it's like um, it's, it's even worse with tv series just because mm-hmm. 
obviously they're presenting in a visual medium and they want it to look good and I really understand that but at the same time it's like no there's no way they could live in this gorgeous house this gorgeous apartment yeah um it's actually sort of one of the things I, I sort of explained for Kestrel which is how on earth she can afford to have a place in London um and it's simply because the yeah so the the house that she got she she basically was able to put get the sort of the the mortgage payment for it get a mortgage for it um because she's been in so many horrific accidents and stuff like that um that were not her fault that she kind of she keeps getting sort of insurance payouts. <laughs> she keeps getting insurance payout she's like well if i'm gonna keep almost dying i might as well get the sort of insurance payout so like for her for example she was on one of those bridges that open when boats need to go on when it started to open while she was still on it so she got a huge payout for that because obviously that was not supposed to happen and so it was with that payout even though she almost died that she was like well i guess i'm buying a house and she got a very cheap house because there was a murderous poltergeist with a predilection for power tools living in the apartment <laughs> at the time and it's just I'm sorry I'm now imagining Kestrel approaching any insurance company and them going no uh uh-uh, no 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 we heard you, of are you blacklisted from everything but yeah she, she has had a lot of payouts from like the city as well because it's like your bridge almost killed me So, so yeah, so it's something you need to think about. Um, and it's okay if you say, actually, I just want them to have a nice place to live. Because also the fact of the matter is, is that you can have situations where people live in very nice places, but are still incredibly, um, you know, actually, you know, incredibly poor or really struggling. Um, a good example of this is, for example, you could have someone who, who lives in a castle um, but actually, you know, they, you know, it's a family castle or their father bought the castle or something like that. And then they lost all the money because yeah. of gambling or, or they've just not been able to kind of keep it up. And so even though there's this, they own this huge castle, uh, they can't afford to heat it. They can't afford to, you know, do any repairs on it. You know, they can't really afford electricity except for maybe in one room or something like that, or it's freezing or you know so they have this luxurious home and perhaps they even have some luxurious you know pieces of furniture and stuff from a time when things were better but the situation they are in now is that they can barely afford to eat um again it's important to remember that people's circumstances can change at the drop of a hat um people are not just continuously at one level so you could have someone who lives in a very nice place um because of previous you know uh wealth or you know previous comfort and is now no longer in that situation yeah okay the next one uh no one thinks about the poor henchman (laughs) (laughs) so look we all love a robin hood style tale where the rich villain is untouchable because of his place in the class hierarchy and thus cannot be brought to justice any other way than by masked vigilanteism um but how many unnamed henchmen get killed along the way and why were they there could it be because they just needed paid work um could it be because they had to be there uh did they deserve to die for wanting to feed their own families 
Now, we're not saying that you have to stop and give every single henchman a backstory, but just think about the contrast if your main character mows down hundreds of nameless goons, but stops at the baddie who happens to have a title. It's not a great message to send, because it equates to this poor criminal's life is worth less than this rich villain's life. Again, think about it and maybe consider sparing the minions where possible. Um, a great example of this actually is in Iron Man 3, where oh, you just have that, that one moment where, where one of the goons just puts up his hands and he's like, look, you know, I hate working here. These people are weirdos. <laughs> and Tony's just... like, just gives him a little wave, like, go on. And the guy just sort of wanders away. I loved that moment because yeah. I just thought I've wanted that all this time. It's just for the henchman to be like... This is, you know, I, I, this is just supposed to be a job. <laughs> it's like, I, I do nine to five and I go home and everyone gets to eat. And please, I don't know. <laughs> I just, just want to go home. Well, even um, I'm temping this week, for God's sake. Yeah. And, you know, there are certain times where you can be like, okay, hold on a second. The people who are working here are cl clearly, you know, have had no qualms about just committing murder and stuff like that. You know, they they have absolutely no qualms about it. Um, they've we've seen them doing horrible things um, but for the most part you know if, if for example like with something with Robin Hood and stuff like that you see all these soldiers who are running around and you're like they're just ordinary citizens who yeah. are doing a job really and who, who probably don't actually have that much choice in the matter um, and you are just kind of going around murdering them <laughs> So did you watch much of um I think it was CW Arrow? Um yes, I did watch Green a Arrow. little bit of it. Yeah. I I didn't really get much into it, but I do remember sort of a few episodes in thinking he's killing a lot of people. As in he's yeah. just killing a lot of random people who are clearly turning up just to die, which you know is a thing that really bugs me anyway. But yeah. also it's like what the, these guys are just doing their day job, you know. <laughs> I'm yeah. pretty sure Hawkeye wouldn't have just gone straight to killing them. He'd have pinned them <laughs> to something first. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, it's... It's the same with some people, you know, would argue about certain versions of Batman, yeah. where it was like he was just going around just beating up all of the, you know, the low-level criminals um, and ignoring, you know, the big the big stuff that was happening, the white-collar crime, which was actually one of the main fundamental issues in Gotham. Um, and actually, depending on wh which Batman you read, you do actually see the other side of that, which is that he is actually a lot more sympathetic to the, to the average man on the street than he is to the larger kind of players who are causing major disruption. But it does depend on which, you know, who's writing it and which comic it is and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so jobs are inherited. Um, this is an idea that's always right out of a Victorian novel. Um, mm -hmm. Although I'm being a bit fair to the Victorians on this one because, you know, it, in many ways it makes sense depending on the setting you've got for your story. Yeah. Um, and it was certainly how things were done for many, many centuries. So if your mother and father were blacksmiths in medieval England, and your mother would absolutely have been a blacksmith as well as your father, so... It, you wouldn't have come from a single blacksmith family unless one of your parents had died, but they would have both been blacksmiths. Um, the chances are you would have been trained as a blacksmith too. You know, it was a good trade. You could do quite well out of that and you would be one of the wealthier 
um, lower classes if you got a trade like that and you didn't drink all your profits away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, but the problem with this in storytelling terms is that if you move that idea straight over into a story, um, then you know we've largely moved away from a feudal system <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah. So while things are not perfectly equal and great efforts have been made to provide more opportunities for more people you know the the standard of living has generally gone up in the west even though there are areas that absolutely need addressing so Mm -hmm. a system that endorses inheriting occupations endorses inheriting a class system and all the baggage that goes with it and that's is that something you actually want to examine or is that something that has crept in because you haven't really considered it i guess is what i'm getting at yeah so for example the hunger games is a really good just in terms of world building is good at looking at that so if you happen to be born in the capital chances are you will inherit wealth and the status and stuff that goes with it or you will be part of that rat race to the top which comes with its own problems um if you were born in district 12 for example chances are you're going to end up being a coal miner because your father or your mother was (coughs) yeah um, you know, you can absolutely do that. And of course, there are lots of reasons why, you know, even in a story which is set in the modern day, uh, people might inherit sort of their their parents' kind of work. This could be because there are actually, you know, um, there's actually more than just, you know, um, sort of it's more than work. There's actually something tied in in terms of your actual inheritance that's tied into it, for example. Um, if you are from a farming family and you have been helping out on the farm from a, a long time, there is a chance that you might also then continue that work, but not necessarily um, because of course farming has changed um, and it might very well be that actually that's not what you want to do as, as sort of the next generation. Um, if your family owns a shop, and again, the shop is literally they own the shop they don't just rent the space but also you know they own it again if you've been working to you know you've been helping to work there for a long time or something like that or that you know you even enjoy it you might also then inherit it that's you know there's nothing wrong with doing that um you know there's a lot of sort of there can be cultural things that are mixed up with it there could also be you know emotional things your family runs a restaurant you love the restaurant you love to cook you want to inherit it that's absolutely fine but it's not a a standard kind of thing um that you and you should consider why have you decided to to implement it if you do decide to implement it yeah um i i also think the more recent iteration of Battlestar Galactica Mm -hmm. explored this quite well. Um, I've obviously talked about this show at length. It's not that recent anymore. Um, But just to to go back to it, most of the human race has been wiped out and what's left is like an exodus of spaceships containing the last remnants of humanity, which are around sort of 15 or 16,000 people. Mm -hmm. Um, And they start to make progress in terms of rebuilding things for themselves. But one of the issues that comes up and causes you know a great deal of strife on the sh- on the ships across the fleet is the fact that you know they start pairing up and they start having children they have to really because otherwise the human race is going to die out and at that point it suddenly becomes apparent that they've got a class system going without meaning it so 
the people who manage to escape who are politicians and journalists or whatever are having children who are then getting trained in those professions and the people who were mechanics and um, cooks and things like that have children who are getting trained in, in that direction and as one character points out you know what are we saying here that because I happen to have chosen to be a mechanic that my son the only thing he can do is be a mechanic because I made a choice before this you know this entire thing happened and it's a really interesting thinking point yeah and it's particularly interesting and sort of really kind of raises the whole thing of okay but who is teaching these children if there is a standardized form of education then ideally that should mean that children can then you know aren't inheriting things but rather are actually you know um sort of can gear themselves towards what they want to do but of course if you are in a situation where even if you have standardized sort of learning but then those kids go home and they're immediately helping in the kitchen or they're immediately sort of being pulled into debates or certain things they're going to be shaped into going in a certain way because of their experiences and stuff like that um so it's all very complicated <laughs> yeah definitely i think there's also an angle to consider from a more upper class perspective which is that you know obviously most families have more than one child and maybe you can child train up one child for the inherited restaurant or shop or what have you or empire of department stores um from if you were looking at a more historical perspective you know the younger son quite often had to go and do something else because you couldn't divide the estate between two sons or three sons um so you'd have a younger son who'd go off and be a, a parson or a cleric of some kind and then an even younger son who'd go off to sea and make his fortune that way and the girls were even more limited in the fact that if you could not find a good match there's a chance you would just get shipped off to be a governor somewhere yeah um, which is what Jane Austen very narrowly avoided herself. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. The next is wealth equates to villainy. Um, now, I'm not going to lie. This is a this is an unbelievably annoying trope because it assumes that there is no way of acquiring wealth or inheriting it, which is not fundamentally dishonest and exploitative. Um, now a little caveat here Um, there are people in the world who have the huge amounts of money that they currently have because of exploitative reasons we cannot deny that Um, frankly when you start to earn above a certain amount it is almost always because somewhere down the line you have exploited somebody Um, but even though that is the case with, you know, some of those real one percenters, uh, there are a lot of people between that who have not, you know, not done that. Um, And really, whenever you kind of implement this idea, particularly when you start to attack what is again, and I use in inverted commas, sort of the middle class as part of that, because the middle class is often the one that people sort of direct their anger to, which is, for me, it just feels like it's really been done on purpose, whereby it's been shaped like, no, no, don't get angry at us, we're the top elite, we're what you want to aim for, the middle class are the ones who are making your life miserable, when, eh, no, Um, (laughs) you're actually essentially just attacking 
yourselves. You're attacking what is what is essentially just part of your own pathway. Um, it betrays an astounding level of ignorance, which, without deviating from the main point here, is really being exploited by certain parties with a political agenda. Um, and yes, we are all familiar with the very wealthy person who is clueless about the lives of others. Uh, most of us have met a few of those people, or at least seen them arguing in the House of Lords. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, which is a whole other issue when those people are the ones who are making decisions about our country. Um, but this assumption that A, all inherited wealth is tainted and that B, all rich people are evil is utterly false. Um, great wealth can and does make it easier for some people to do and to get away with awful things. Uh, it would be ridiculously ignorant to say that that is not the case. However, the people you don't hear about are those of old money who carry on generation-long protections of land and nature, conservation, maintenance of schools and public services, charitable endeavours, and more. Arguably, they do more good with their wealth than certain agenda-driven groups criticising it. Um, it's not wrong in and of itself to have money or want to work towards being independently wealthy. It's how you get there. Um, and again, we advocate for nuance. Um, now, particularly when we're looking at old money um, in the UK, but pretty much across the board, um, you know, there are there's the whole subject of well, okay, there was exploit exploitation in the past because to get that wealthy in the past, you have to exploited somebody. Um, sometimes that was with slavery, sometimes it was going way back towards the feudal system, sometimes it was an ancestor who was particularly tricksy and, you know, managed to worm their way into an inheritance and exploited something or another. Um, and I think the problem with this is that it's ridiculous to say, no, 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 that's not the case, you know, uh, we, we can't no no we're all sort of 100% good people going back because no if everyone looks back at their ancestry there's at least one asshole there somewhere definitely. you'll have a murderer somewhere yeah you'll have a murderer you'll have someone who's exploited every single person will have something like that in their ancestry um, some people might have more some people might have less um, but I am of the firm belief that whilst it is important to recognise where wealth has come from particularly with these old kind of families and stuff like that, um, you do not inherit the wrongdoings of your ancestors. Um, you inherit a system which they, you know, which has, you know, put you in an excellent position of privilege, and but everything is down to what you then do with the privilege that you've been given. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I would like to say I'm not a royalist of any kind, to mm. me, the royal family is interesting from the perspective of them being a living historical monument. I find them morbidly fascinating. <laughs> and I think two or three of them are actually pretty decent people. Overall, though, there are many, many minor royals that we just don't hear about. There are cousins, there are aunts, there are second cousins. Um, there are various people who don't have a title or whatever, or they're an honourable, or you know, they're a bit lower down on the social echelons. And their income is sort of around the, the one to five million mark, which, you know, still seems like a phenomenal amount of money. But actually, if you compare it to, say, your average 
um, entrepreneur who, who's made billions, for example, is, is small potatoes, it's nothing. And yet these people, when you go and look at what they genuinely do without press coverage, without anybody really knowing what they do, if you actually dig into it, they do a hell of a lot of good. You get We get more help and relief and stuff from their actions than we do probably from our own government. Obviously, talking specifically UK here. Yeah. So I'm not a monarchist, but I'm also not for let's throw it out immediately um, without having something good to replace it with. I don't think the idea of tearing down a system without a good idea of what you want to replace it with is a good idea. I think it's terrible. Yeah. um, And as someone who... I think the problem is a lot of people see that and they go, oh, French Revolution, yeah, um, are totally forgetting that what happened after the French Revolution. Yeah, nobody's pure enough. <clears throat> yeah, which was that there was no organisation and the fact of the matter is is that at the end of the day, the French Revolution, the people who were the most desperate and who needed that help were still starving by the end. It, there was nothing really which actually helped the system that was put in place was unstable and remember who was born out of that Napoleon um, the, the fact of the matter is that if, 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 if it was just a matter of well chopping a few people's heads off and everything would be solved um, we wouldn't have had all that we had <laughs> following that no no we not okay okay so lampooning lower classes now look I, I can't remember who I think it was one of my work colleagues said that one of her professors said once either everything is funny or nothing's funny and I broadly agree with that in the sense of there's humour to be found in everything mm-hmm. um, and one of the fundamental parts of comedy is seeking to understand the experiences of others when the way they act seems ridiculous to you the point is you are sharing the joke because you don't understand and a way of getting on top of that lack of understanding is to bridge the gap with humour. And yeah. if people do it intelligently, it can be done well in a way that is not cruel. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this can come down to who is making the joke. And sometimes it comes down to just not understanding how the joke comes across. I mean, I don't think there are a lot of comedians anymore who go out with the desire to actively harm people. They might want to offend because that provokes thought and talk, etc., but they're not trying mm. to actively harm someone. Yeah. Um, moving away from that, there are plenty of examples of lower classes being mocked in speculative fiction. And often this goes hand in hand with cultural or ethnic mocking as well, which is not a good look. No. So you don't have to go very far back in entertainment, for example, to see how the Irish were lampooned for being always hungry. Um, exaggerating their circumstances with tall tales and just generally depicted in a laughable manner, quite often as being dirty and ignorant and speaking in a way that was incomprehensible, which suggested they were ill-educated. Yeah, and stealing things. And stealing things, (laughs) yeah. Um, Now, for example, (laughs) Babel by R.F. Kwong, who wrote The Poppy Walk, came out in, I think, October last year. And in (laughs) that, that book has a lot to unpack. Um, I'm just going to come right out and say that book is a complete and utter disaster. It's a shit show from beginning to end, and it shouldn't have been because it was quite an interesting and original idea. The way she did it was not good, in my opinion. Although there have been hundreds and hundreds of people singing the praises of it, so maybe I'm wrong. Um, 
Although I have to say I did take exception at this specific thing, among others. Uh, there's a London riot scene and she has the token Irish character who is given a very typical Irish name, as in an Irish name that someone can actually pronounce that isn't spelt in the, the, the grill gateway or anything. Mm-hmm. She also mixes up uh, Gaelic and Grilge together. Um, <laughs> considering this is a book that actually is talking about linguistics and how every act of translation is technically an act of violence upon that language and culture, which is an interesting idea, I think. And then she can't tell the difference between Scottish and Irish, or she hasn't bothered to expand her understanding to even include that. I personally found that quite offensive. Mm. Um, when included with the rest of the book, that seemed to send a message of, yes, but it's a white language and I don't care about white languages. Moving away from that. Um, during this London riot, she has the token Irish character throw a potato at an official. This book is set during 1847 when the Great Famine was taking place. Um, you don't have to go very far back to look at the caricatures and cartoons of this time, both from America and from the UK and other places, depicting starved, bony and dirty Irish people begging for potatoes because they're hungry. Um, so basically, just because you're a group of people who are largely white, it doesn't mean you're punching up with your humour if you pick them to take to to mock. Yeah. So that one really, really annoyed me because I don't see how you can have an entire book that's supposed to be deconstructing colonialism and not take into account that the first victims of any empire are its own people, the people who were immediately colonised. Yeah. Um, How can you I, be that stupid, genuinely? It, yeah, it, it is this kind of this moment where the colour of your skin does not erase the horrors which you have had to suffer. And particularly, um, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, OK, you know, but we're we're looking at things which are still affecting us to this day. And when it comes to the Irish, the fact of the matter is, is that all of that history um, is still seen in what is happening today. The, you know, the troubles um, and and the the sort of the prejudices that are still alive and affecting people and also the, the social situations which are still alive and affecting people in Ireland today are all a product of this colonial violence um which as jules said you know started on on the doorstep um, <laughs> you know when they when the the sort of the english kind of began to expand the first people they colonized were white because they were the ones who were next door yeah and you know while we're while we're talking about this let's remember that it wasn't just english people it was whoever had been part of that group. So I'm sorry, but there would have been Welsh and Scottish people. There would have been people who'd immigrated to Britain who were part of this as well. This wasn't yeah. a specific race oppressing another race. Um, and aside from a few fat cats at the very top, uh, most of the UK, most of Britain, was actually being oppressed into a state of absolutely crushing poverty so you yeah. didn't even have to go across the Irish Channel to say 
yeah, generally the poor were very poor, as in they were dirt poor, and the hours they had to work in factories and things to fund this industrial revolution um, were were terrible. They were absolutely appalling. Uh, you think of the children who were fed into factories in order to pick threads and things out of machines who then got maimed. Think of the workhouses. Um, so yeah, it, it, this is all really awful stuff. Mm. And you don't even have to go very far out into the whole concept of empire to, to find the oppressed minorities, if you want to say minority. Yeah. The whole problem was poverty. It wasn't necessarily different. I mean, there was cultural clashes as well, but yeah, I think the poverty thing was kind of more of an issue in some respects. Yeah. And again, this is not their say, therefore about invalidating anybody else's experience or things like that. Everything was very different. Um, but it's about understanding that there were lots of different experiences. So yeah, I do think that that's very distasteful, um, really, on the part w with sort of the Irish potato famine and, and things like that. Um, that actually hurts. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, that hurts. It's just, I, I think, it, I genuinely think it was supposed to be funny. Or maybe it was even supposed to be symbolic, but it yeah. was just, it just reminded me of the whole when there were, uh, back when, you know, the Luddites were breaking the machinery up, up north because, you know, it was threatening their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> Patrick Bronte had to carry pistols with him everywhere just to frighten off anyone who might attack him because he was a vicar and they're obviously so much better off. They built an effigy of his son with a potato in his hand to mock his accent and paraded it around town. And it's that sort of thing. I mean, that's poor people taking the piss out of only slightly marginally more well-off people. Yeah. <laughs> who were almost, you know, they, they again, who were almost as poor. Um, but it's, it's that mentality. I mean, I just... Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm still stumbling over the whole, you write an entire book that's about etymology and the power of language and you do that, you pull that shit. Like, yeah. Yeah, don't tell me that's a good book. It's not a good book. Um, anyway, what you can do is avoid making your poorer characters dirty, crude and stupid. So just because someone's poor, that doesn't mean they don't know anything. Yeah. Um, and a college degree is no proof of intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the very least, don't assume a stereotypical quality is the entirety of a character. Yeah. Good good general rule for any sort of characterisation, that. Yeah. Okay. So our last one is uh, Fear of the Mob. Um, now, this is a bit of a tricky one, so, so bear with us. Um, we can all acknowledge that there's income inequality. The ideal situation would be that everyone has their needs taken care of to a decent standard and a little extra. And if you want more wealth and luxury on top of that, you can earn it. So a difficult model to resolve, but we're, you know, we're blue skying here. We're saying that's that would be the, the, the best possible outcome. However, at present, inequality of income tends to get worse if it's left alone. This is because wealthy people have more power and influence to advance their own agendas. For comparatively few wealthy people, this can be at the expense of others and has disproportionately negative effects. So, as we said before, um, it's exploitation. 
plain and simple and the problem is that um, for a few wealthy people they do that and they get wealthier and they get wealthier and they get wealthier and then they have more power and more say and they kind of really just continue to push the, the system into what they want so um, basically if it is kept you know unchecked um, what happens is that you get more and more underprivileged people um, and you have then a smaller and smaller and smaller group of privileged people who become very very privileged so by quantity of numbers um, they force oblivious privileged to pay attention um, now at this point we're talking about collective action so strikes, unionization, peaceful protests, media coverage. And news outlets have generally always been critical of income inequality. Uh, generally, of course, it depends who owns the uh, news outlet. It does, and who's leaning on it at a specific time. But, you yeah. know, in an ideal world. Yeah. Um, the problem comes with demonising this collective action. Yeah. <clears throat> However... <laughs> there's always a however <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, showing mob activity rather than peaceful protest and jumping through hoops to get bills of, of laws changed as positive is equally problematic we shouldn't be advocating violent action as a solution for one thing it leads to greater resistance than those who are in a position to affect change for another, the people it hurts are the very people who are underprivileged. Now, again, this is a this is a kind of a mixed bag because I don't, you know, you might very well write a story where people just lose their, you know, just lose their minds and there is, a, you know, a violent action. And there are, have been situations where violence have caused change. Um, Certainly we've seen situations where, you know, historically where there have been, you know, a moment where a mob has actually turned the tide on things in a way that peaceful action didn't seem to do so. But there was always a cost. Um, and often actually there, it, things were a lot more nuanced than we like to look at. And for the majority of the time when violent action was the kind of the go-to it has resulted in things getting significantly worse for a lot of people yeah so for example let's um i don't want to pick on anything specific but if we're talking about um an underprivileged section of the community who m the majority happen to be black for example mm -hmm. and they don't have very much at all but they riot mm -hmm. And what happens is they end up burning down the shop on the corner. And you'll say, why? And it's like, well, because we own nothing. And the problem is, what happens then is that shop or that petrol station or whatever doesn't get replaced. Because the people who owned that, again, <laughs> rather like the Brontes and the Luddites, um, weren't actually significantly better off than the people who were rioting. So what happens is you now live in an underprivileged community that doesn't have access to a shop and now you need to travel 10 miles or so to the nearest shop in order to get food. Yeah. It, even um, a simple thing like that can really harm you. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, you'd say, oh, well, it was a chain shop. And at which point, again, you've not actually hurt the people who really actually, you know, you've not actually made an effect because even if it's a chain shop and, you know, it was just being rented there, okay, it closes down. It's not going to really hit the chain that much. But now there is no shop there. Yeah, they'll, they'll cut their losses. Yeah, and the people who were working there were people from your community. Who now don't have a job, so you've yeah. added to the problem. So for a, basically for you know one evening satisfaction where you feel that you have managed to act out and do something, what you've actually accomplished is you've set yourself back. Um, and it sounds like we're we're preaching to a specific set of people, and we're we're really not. It's just that I don't think people necessarily look. I think the problem with a lot of this is why I'm so funny about this stuff being in speculative fiction because I think mm. people read it and it sits at the back of people's minds, and they think that it's okay to take these sort of actions and x equals y and provides you with z. And that's not what happens. What happens is x equals xa plus xb plus xc equals z3 to the squared of whatever. And yeah. it's just, it, it it's not that straightforward because you cannot see the entire issue. I can't see the entire issue. No that's, one can. That's part of the problem. Yeah, it's, it's, there are so many webs and there are so many things which are attached to it, which we cannot, you know, fathom. Um, at the same time, I I have no problem with these things appearing in fiction um, because there is something to be said about if a group of people are hungry, if a group of people are angry, sometimes an explosion can happen, as it were. And, that, and you're not wrong to depict that because it's also realistic. Um, but when it's simplified to and then everybody rose up and they burnt it all to the ground and everything was fine afterwards you actually kind of do a bit of a you know a bit of a dis- disservice to whoever you're actually trying to represent in that moment because you've completely removed all of the nuance that goes along with that which is part of the reality of of the life they live and why they are having so much difficulty yeah, absolutely. A really good example of it being done well, weirdly enough, is um, part of Tamora Pierce's Becca Cooper series. Um, and it's the second book, Bloodhound. And the book starts off with, obviously, Becca's a young hound. She's basically a young copper. <laughs> and she gets called in, you know, she gets ordered to put on riot gear um, because they're trying to hold back the rioting crowd um and she you get her perspective on it as in she can understand because she's one of them when she finishes her shift she goes home to the poor quarter of town she has only slightly more money to spend than some of the other people there less than a lot of them um so she is absolutely one of them and she said you know she's basically saying i was nigh on pissing myself because of this angry mob of people coming down on me and i don't want to hurt anybody but at the same time, I've also got to try not to die. So I'm wearing what passes for medieval riot gear and trying to keep them back until someone can release what is a, what is effectively um, water fountains that sort of douses the crowd off and disperses them as peacefully as possible. And it turns out through as you go through the book 
that the reason the riot happened was the cost of um, bread had first doubled, then tripled overnight. And we're not talking fresh bread, we're talking day-old bread. And a lot of yeah. people who couldn't afford fresh bread would buy day-old bread for like a copper or whatever. Yeah. And then it, they'd have bread to feed their family. When it suddenly costs three coppers, they can't afford bread anymore, which means they can't eat. And so people who can't eat get desperate and they do this sort of stuff. But yeah. it doesn't solve anything. And it turns out the reason that this this bread cost had changed so much was because someone else in another part of the kingdom was counterfeiting money. And what happens when you counterfeit money is it it makes the valuation of, of real money go down drastically. Mm. So where a copper used to be worth a certain amount of money, now it's worth one-tenth of that. So it yeah. makes the cost of goods go up proportionately. So suddenly people are still earning the same, but the cost of goods is 10 times more expensive. And they can't afford to live. They literally cannot afford to live. So that's one person who's profiting very temporarily mm -hmm. off of hundreds of thousands of people starving to death and causing all this problem. So the problem was not the police in this situation. Yeah. The problem was not the upper echelons or the aristocracy or whatever. It was one particular organised criminal element doing this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's, you know, there's also kind of ways that you can, um, obviously, you, if you are thinking about something for your own work, uh, there are lots of other reasons why you might suddenly have grain costing more, and it could be because there was a bad harvest. So, you know, even if people are complaining and saying it's too expensive, the reason it's too expensive is because there isn't enough. Yeah. Or, um, you know, there was an ergot in it or something, in which yeah. case it wasn't fit to eat. It's basically the potato famine, isn't it, again? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the, it, what's interesting is I, I remember that they kind of did this in Poldark, yeah. um, where, you know, they had this this element that, of course, you have, you have Poldark himself, you have Ross, um, and yes, he is part of the gentry. Uh, he has very little. He's inherited this house, but he is there working in the mines with everybody else. He runs these mines. He doesn't actually have that much to his name. He's well, He has a name, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. And he gets put into these desperate situations. Um, and he, um, you know, at the time, you know, there are these kind of... He's much more in touch with you know the people around him but at the same time he's separated from them and you do almost have these riots because of grain and whatnot um and it's interesting because of course they would have this very villainous character in terms of george who was basically enjoying everything enjoying all of the stuff while everybody else wasn't you know and yeah. there was this sense of actually it's not necessarily that there isn't enough um but rather that there is enough but only but and there are people who are kind of really really benefiting off of kind of making those prices higher yeah um and it's absolutely okay to have that narrative because honestly that narrative is also true um, and particularly during certain periods of time there were very much people who were benefiting off of the loss of everybody else um, but 
what was interesting and again what i think about in terms of whenever people talk about the french revolution is that uh, when the aristo were having their heads cut off and stuff like that most of the first people who were attacked and mobbed were not the most wealthy people who were all kind of hauled up in Versailles and stuff like that. The people who were actually really causing all of these problems and were living decadently and were completely disconnected from what was happening in the rest of France. It was the local gentry who were there alongside, who were connected, who were advocating for change, who were the ones who were also struggling to eat yes they had this land and stuff like that they'd inherited it but they themselves were very poor at that point they had very little left for the most part um they weren't the ones who were being corrupt they definitely were part of a system that was corrupt but they weren't actually most of them were actually trying to help and they were the ones who were killed first because they were in reach yeah essentially um and so whenever you kind of write these kinds of scenes i i'm always very much for saying yeah absolutely feel free to write that feel free to have the mop it's accurate because as jill said hungry people get desperate and stuff like that um when when they attacked the bastille you know it was the whole thing of sort of okay but would you like to join us for a for food first um and it was you know the the whole point was how dare you you've got this lavish meal and the rest of us are starving um and at some points it was you know it was all philosophical uh, but at other points it was very much based on what people needed in that exact moment um and that's fine to write but you have got to kind of actually say okay but what are the larger consequences of it um, and understand that it's not an us versus them situation constantly with every single person. Um, there is always more nuance to it. Definitely. Um, so I would say, I would I would say, don't necessarily depict violent collective action as something that is desirable, uh, but also don't demonise collective action because there there is a value in unity unionization and um, strikes and things like that you know we're, we're experiencing a lot of strikes in the uk right now and yeah it, you know as someone trying to get from place to place or would like their, their post on time and what have you um yes that is annoying but these people have got reasons for striking yeah you know um they would do not have reasons to say go and blow up the houses of parliament or the houses of lords there's there's, there's a line it's not all the same thing and i think what bugs me is particularly in more young adult type of fiction i see more of this Oh, well, in that case, we're going to go straight from zero to let's let's bomb everything, mm. which is not. I mean, I'm not saying there's not a time for violence. That that absolutely is, but it's a long way down the line. It's not your first. It's not your first option. Yeah, and I and every time you know they have the like it's it's the Fight Club thing where people go, oh, that's aspirational. And you see the end with these buildings blowing up and all I can think of is what about all those other people? Yeah. It's all just... the other people in those buildings. You know, who are you actually really hurting at the end of that? <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it, it, it's kind of, 
there's a huge picture. I mean, the other example we didn't really talk about, and we have mentioned it before, is Trudy Canavan's Black Magician trilogy. And she mm. does quite a good job of taking us from one viewpoint to the other through that trilogy, whereby, obviously, Sonia starts off believing that the wealthy elite magicians are the source of the problem. And then when she's on the other side of the fence, she is forced to reconcile with the fact that there's a much, much bigger narrative going on and that it's not as simple as simply let's take the wealth from the wealthy and give it to those who, who don't have anything. Yeah, or, or as simple as... not as wealthy or, as she thinks they are, for example. Yeah, exactly. Or as simple as, well, let's just sort out, you know, go, go down there and just give people money. And I think that Trudy Canavan really balanced it because Sonia in the end says, yeah, okay, all right, so maybe it's not simple, but that doesn't mean that you can't, you have these powers that doesn't mean you can't be down there helping the people in this yeah you know helping people in the slums um and she she does make that positive change she does go out there and she does start to use her powers for them as well whilst also acknowledging the fact that it's a whole lot more complicated and can't be resolved with a quick swish of the hands yeah yeah absolutely so yeah um it's very nuanced a lot of people are going to have sort of different mileage with this and a lot of people are going to have different feelings about it usually stemming from anger and that anger comes from you know from a legitimate place i think um but whenever you are writing you do hold a level of responsibility i think in understanding your intentions and also considering how it might affect other people and what can be taken from it so approaching these things with con you know with conscious decisions does make a difference but we are also all victims of our own upbringing and our own sort of viewpoints um, and we might be blind to certain things i know that i have been and probably continue to be despite my best efforts and as such we should always be open to hearing and considering other perspectives um so if you've disagreed with anything that we've said or, or feel like we've missed something um we would love to hear from you um we are always open to re-evaluating reconsidering um and to also kind of really looking at our own work from a new perspective so do get in touch with us before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe you've got an interesting one for us yeah, I've just finished Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher. Um, T. Kingfisher is kind of moving into my favourite author's category <laughs> at this point. She, um, it's, a, it's a pseudonym and she describes it herself as the slightly outlandish and dramatic pseudonym of um, someone who, who basically writes children's fiction as well and she's an illustrator and does all sorts of cool stuff. Mm. Um, she's written sort of fairy tale retellings she's written fantasy she's written dark fantasy and she's written horror and her horror is actually quite horrific <laughs> um, nettle and bone is not quite cozy fantasy although it feels like it until she does something really horrific a few times <laughs> but it's kind of uh, a modern-ish take on a fairy tale it's not set in modern times, it's set in a fairy tale, quasi-medieval type state. But basically there are three sisters. Right. Um, the youngest sister, Mara, is not good at political stuff or court games and things. And 
she's quite young for her age in many ways and because mm -hmm. she always sees the best in other people it makes her blind to the fact that some people are absolute assholes right i think is the way to put it um her older sister is married off to the son of the neighboring and much more powerful kingdom nearby right and then a short while later her, her older sister comes back in a coffin and it it's been a terrible terrible accident and there's a big show of you know black horses drawing a black carriage etc etc um but she's convinced there's something not right about this. It doesn't sit, even with someone who is as innocent as her, it doesn't sit quite right. And bear in mind that she's about 10 at this point in time. Mm. Anyway, a short while later, uh, the queen, their mother, marries the second sister off to the same person. <laughs> a couple of years later. At this point, Mara is about sort of 12, 13. Um, it then transpires the queen has Mara put in a convent because... The deal they've struck up with this other country is that the the son, the first son, will be heir to both kingdoms. Now, if Mara has marries and has a child of her own, then that child will be a contestant for the throne of this harbour kingdom. Right. But Mara's quite happy in the convent because it's quiet. She doesn't have to do the political bullshit, which she doesn't like. She can just be comfy wearing robes and things. She can help in the herb garden and she can do embroidery and she can help muck out the stables. She likes the quiet life. And it's only when she's really confronted with the fact that something is terribly, terribly wrong with her second sister mm. that she is forced out of this happy state of almost willful ignorance. Um which sets her on a quest. And her quest brings together the most unlikely group of people you can imagine. Not a single person in that group is someone where you'd look at them and go, yep, that's hero material. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a 70-something-year-old woman who is incredibly grumpy and does not want to go on this quest. She has, <laughs> she has a vague middle-aged fairy godmother who is lovely and sweet and bright and jolly, etc., and won't use her gift in case she accidentally curses somebody. There is a demonic chicken. There is a dog that is dead and is not dead any longer. <laughs> and there is a man who is a confirmed murderer and decided to commit suicide by trying to sleep in a fairy mound and instead got enslaved in a goblin market. What? <laughs> so none of these people who are going on what is essentially a suicide mission are hero material. And it is amazing watching these people come together to do the, this impossible task that Mara has set for herself. Um, it's really, really clever. And it is a, an incredibly good commentary on, on the fact that there are some people who are so powerful that it is almost impossible to bring them to justice. And the only way you can do it is by coming in at such a crazy angle that no one sees it coming. <laughs> okay, I love that. <laughs> it is such a good book. It's quite short. It's something like 250 pages. Um, and that's Nettle and Bone by T. King Fisher. It's, it's cosy-ish vibes, but I wouldn't call it cosy fantasy. Um, <laughs> it, it's really, really great. I highly recommend that one. Okay, thank you so much. I am definitely going to have to <laughs> uh, read that because that sounds incredible. <laughs> and on that note, guys... We will say thank you so much for listening and we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye.
You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. Thank you.